Friday. That means it's time to look back at the week that was in our weekly news recap. Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin went live with a website announcing his campaign for governor. This highly anticipated announcement shakes up the GOP primary. The city's inspector general just released its scathing findings about how the city handled the aftermath of the wrong police raid on Anjanette Young's home. It details the extent of misconduct carried out by multiple city agencies, including the mayor's office, police department, and civilian office of police accountability. The Illinois Supreme Court heard arguments today over the controversial use of campaign money to fight corruption cases. It's been a full week, so here to help us make sense of it all is Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. Welcome back to the show, Aaron. Thanks, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And Rick Pearson, chief political reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Great to have you back, Rick. Thank you very much. We'll start with you, Rick. A state uh, elections update is is due here. We had a new Republican challenger enter the governor's race. So tell us about Richard Irvin. Uh, I'd like to tell you about him. But, you know, like most Illinoisans, we're still trying to figure out exactly who he is. Uh, Irvin, 51, is the first black mayor of Aurora, the state's second largest city, uh, recently reelected to that post. Um, He becomes the fifth Republican uh, to announce uh, for the GOP nomination in the June 28th primary. Uh, but he is somewhat distinct from the others in that uh, he's part of what has been a recruiting process mm-hmm. by allies of Illinois' uh, wealthiest person, Ken Griffin, the uh, uh, founder and CEO of uh, the Citadel Investment Firm. And Griffin has vowed to go all in on an effort to defeat first-term Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker. So Irvin becomes the head of a slate that uh, was created uh, with designs of appealing to Griffin as well as Griffin's finances uh, in order to uh, have a wealthy challenger in the general election against Pritzker, who's a a billionaire entrepreneur and heir of the uh, Hyatt Hotel fortune. But uh, Irvin's gotten some criticism for not being a true Republican. What's that about? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where the early uh, demarcation is coming from, is that Irvin had pulled a Democratic ballots in four of the most five recent Democratic, five primary elections. And he's facing criticism about, you know, how Republican are you? In his debut video announcement, three-minute video, very slickly produced, uh, grandson of, of a slave, uh, he was very much touting uh, his law and order credentials as a former assistant state's attorney in Cook and King County, uh, how uh, he was uh, for all lives matter and uh, against defund the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these kinds of things that are, are playing into a Republican playbook here in Illinois, but nationally. But even as he talked about all lives matter, in, a, in the run-up for his re-election, uh, he told a local outlet that he believed in the Black Lives Matter movement very passionately. So what we're seeing here in this early stage is, you know, people trying to define Irvin, who has also said some very nice things about Governor Pritzker and Pritzker's handling of the coronavirus and, and those kinds of things. We're seeing those kinds of things come out while uh, Irvin himself is not had a media availability, has not discussed 
you know, what he thinks of uh, Donald Trump, does yeah. he believe the big lie, those kinds of things. And this, the longer that that takes place, um, there is more of an opportunity for opponents to define him rather than what he really needs to do is define himself. Well, you, you mentioned the governor, J.B. Pritzker, deposited $90 million into his campaign coffers this week. The governor now yeah. has more money in his campaign war chest than all the Republican candidates combined. Is that right? Right. And, and the thing is, with, with Pritzker, you have to remember that when he first ran uh, four years ago, he put in $171.5 million of his own money. So money is not really an issue when it comes to uh, the incumbent governor. In fact, the, the $90 million was put in just days before Irvin announces as kind of making a statement that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go toe-to-toe with Ken Griffin and his money. And Griffin and, and has basically had kind of a proxy war with Republicans against Pritzker. Uh, Griffin gave uh, a lot of money to Bruce Rauner, who uh, Pritzker defeated four years ago. Mm-hmm. He also gave money, uh, lots of money, to defeat Pritzker's signature effort to try to switch the state from a uh, flat rate income tax to a graduated tax system that was defeated on the ballot. So uh, everybody's waiting to see Griffin get in the game here. He, he said he's encouraged by Urban's entry into the race. But uh, as far as the other four candidates that have been previously announced, um, only one, Jesse Sullivan, who's a very much an unknown who lives in central Illinois, um, is uh, friends with the uh, cyber currency community. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got about $10 million in the bank. But, again, here's somebody else that no one knows who he is or what he stands for. There's questions about his Republican bona fides. Uh, and then you've got uh, Gary Rabine, a, a northwest suburban businessman from Bull Valley, who is very much into the uh, Trump network he hosted a fundraiser for Trump at the Bull Valley Country Club that he partially owns and had Don Jr. and his girlfriend attend that. He's part of a member of the board of Turning Point USA, which mm-hmm. is very much into uh, promoting uh, the big lie. Uh, and then you've got uh, downstate Darren Bailey, who is a state senator, um, part of also very much of the extreme kind of rural right where downstate finds most of its voters leading Republican. And, and Bailey has been a anti-maxer, anti-vaccinate guy who yeah. also, you know, has also supported efforts really to uh, decouple uh, Chicago from the rest of the state. Yes, the June 28th primary will certainly be one to watch. Uh, Aaron, let's turn to City Hall now. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, she was back at work in person this week after being diagnosed with COVID, uh, traveling to Washington for the annual Conference of Mayors. Now, the CDC recommends that people who test positive for COVID-19 avoid travel for 10 full days after experiencing symptoms. She didn't wait that long, did she? No, she didn't. Um, So, yeah, I think back to less than two weeks ago, um, Tuesday, January 11th, the mayor issued a statement saying she had, you know, tested positive for COVID that morning and had cold-like symptoms. Um, She'd be working from home. And and she did that. But, but yeah, this past Tuesday, um, so one week later, she said she'd be traveling, like you said, to to D.C. to confer with a bunch of other mayors from across the country on a variety of topics. Um, 
She said she, you know, talked to the Chicago House Commissioner, Allison Arwady, and got her clearance. So as you as you noted, the CDC's website still says um, people who have tested positive should, you know, avoid travel for a full 10 days after the positive test or after, you know, symptoms have kind of um, begun. Um, it, it does note that if people have, have to travel between 6 and 10 days, after testing positive, they should wear a, a mask around mm-hmm. others, which, um, you know, I wasn't in D.C. I'm, I've been here in Chicago, but it, it does look like the mayor has been wearing um, a mask in all the, the photos that I've seen. Okay. So, um, well, but yeah, that's uh, it's, yeah, it was interesting. an interesting turnaround. <laughs> For sure. Well, the mayor was also hearing a lot of criticism over the past week after the Chicago Inspector General's report into the Anjanette Young case was released. What did that report say, Erin? Yeah, so this was um, a summary of a report from the city's inspector general. Um, and it found that officials from, you know, multiple different city departments, including Mayor Lightfoot's own um, communications department, uh, didn't tell the truth and, and misled the public about details in the aftermath of the of CPD's uh, wrongful raid of, of Anjanette Young's home in 2019. Um, so, so that's when they... Um, you know, wrongfully entered her home um, and carried out a search warrant uh, on, on the wrong home of, of Young while she stood handcuffed and without clothes on. And she, you know, repeatedly told officers they had the wrong house. Um, so this this report, um, which was published last Friday, found that city officials delayed their response to the, the wrong raid. They didn't, you know, appropriately respond to Young as a victim of a wrong raid, and they didn't um, you know, they didn't act with transparency and they misled and lied to the public and journalists. Um, and I think, you know, they basically put public relations over the city's mission um, to, I guess, you know, serve serve its residents. Um, and in addition to that, uh, city employees, you know, were charged with and no one was named in, in this um, report. This is all just referring to people by their positions. But okay. um, it charged that, you know, city employees acted without regard for. Um, the city's uh, civilian office of police accountability, which is supposed to operate with, you know, independence and investigating um, misconduct cases. So, um, yeah, it, it 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 didn't look good. There was nothing really great in that report. Cook County's top judge refused Lori Lightfoot's request to keep more people jailed while awaiting trial. Let's listen to what the mayor had to say. Cook County's chief judge, Timothy Evans, denied the mayor's request to jail the most dangerous defendants awaiting trial. And the Chicago Tribune has reported at length about the mayor using flawed data in her push for electronic monitoring reform. I'm going to keep fighting uh, because I believe that having 2,300 violent offenders out on the streets makes our communities less safe. These judges are operating seemingly without any regard for public safety and not taking that into consideration as they are mandated to do by state law is a huge problem and I'm going to keep pressing that point. Aaron, briefly tell us, why is the mayor being blocked? Um, so, I mean, this isn't something that I've been covering closely, but I do think it's, you know, notable that Chief Judge Timothy Evans um, basically says that the data that Mayor Lightfoot is citing is not correct. And, you know, she's trying to make the argument that um, defendants being released on electronic monitoring are are driving up um, crime in the city. 
Um, but when Evans denied Lightfoot's request to keep um, those defendants in jail, you know, he said her, her data is flawed and the data doesn't actually show that people out on electronic monitoring are driving up the, the violence that uh, Lightfoot says that they are. Um, mm. Uh, another quick City Hall story here for you, Aaron. The mayor received a letter that was signed by some 50 civil rights attorneys. They're urging her to drop an ordinance that allows the city to find gang members and, and seize their property. Just uh, briefly tell us about this ordinance and, and what the attorneys are saying. Yeah, so the attorneys are basically saying that they they want her to drop um, this, this proposal, saying that... Um, it would kind of open the door um, for more expensive litigation for the city and would, quote, you know, would, quote, perpetuate racial disparities in law enforcement practices. Um, And they say that, um, like, what's proposal to sue gang members wouldn't actually reduce violence or harm, which is kind of the mayor's whole, you know, rationale for introducing this this ordinance. Um, Now, the mayor yesterday said that she doesn't see her proposal you know, leading to more costly uh, misconduct litigations for the city. Um, but aldermen are scheduled to discuss this ordinance publicly for the first time um, this afternoon in a committee hearing. They're not, you know, they're not scheduled to vote on it. It's just going to be a discussion. Um, and it, it's worth noting that it's also gotten pushback from Cook County Public Defender Sharon Mitchell, the ACLU of Illinois, and, um, you know, a bunch of faith-based organizations. Um so, I'm, yeah, I'm really interested to see how this proposal is presented today in this city council committee, because we, as of you know, this morning, I hadn't seen um, a revised copy of Mayor Lightfoot's proposal that's going to be um, discussed today. So, um, yeah, I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to, to hearing arguments for and, and against um, in person, or not in person, but virtually and in real time. <laughs> Rick, the Illinois Supreme Court is is looking into the practice of politicians using campaign funds to pay criminal defense lawyers. Illinois does have a reputation for its political corruption. So how common is it for indicted politicians to use campaign funds for this purpose? Oh, it's very common. It's been it's been a longstanding practice. And uh, what is kind of curious about the Supreme Court taking this case up is the fact that uh, even lawyers for the state board of elections say that, you know, absent a state law to prohibit the practice, uh, there is there is no way to stop that from being done. I mean, the argument obviously being is that, you know, people, uh, candidates raise money, politicians raise money to help them get elected to public office to do the public duty, and that uh, when there are instances of improprieties uh, alleged or or truthful, uh, that they get to use those very same resources as as part of their defense fund. And, you know, we're seeing in the high-profile cases like Mike Madigan, the former House Speaker, and uh, with uh, Ed Burke, uh, you know, who have stockpiled millions of dollars in their campaign funds, that uh, many a large number of uh, bucks are going to law firms as part of uh, defense operations over alleged misconduct. So yeah. uh, I, I think it'll be curious to see if the Supreme Court will actually uh, say that the practice can end absent the possibility of the legislature itself uh, enacting a ban on it on its own. 
We are back with Reset's weekly news recap, where we break down the week's top local stories. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Before the break, we took a deep dive into the governor's race and what's been happening this week at City Hall. But there is so much more to get to, like these stories. Three Illinois men arrested today for storming the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection more than a year ago. Currently in isolation at an undisclosed out-of-state prison, Jason Van Dyke is less than three weeks from freedom. Van Dyke was convicted of second-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery. One count for each shot that took the life of Laquan McDonald. Two Illinois-based COVID testing labs are now being sued by the Minnesota Attorney General. Yeah, they're being accused of faking their test results. Mayor Lightfoot back on the job, back in public after COVID-19 sidelined her last week. My guests today are Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line, and Rick Pearson, chief political reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Rick, three more Illinois men two brothers and a cousin. They were indicted this week in the attack on the U.S. Capitol. They're among 23 Illinoisans who are charged so far in the attack. What do we know about them? Well, uh, they are uh, from uh, uh, the, the, uh, the brother, your brothers live. One lives in Lockport. One lives down in uh, Metro East area down by St. Louis and Glen Carbon, as well as the, the third man. Um, they were basically tracked because of their mobile devices. And that's how the FBI has actually been working very diligently in this investigation that now there's been over 725 people arrested in what what they call the largest criminal investigation and prosecution in U.S. history. Um, and it's the combination of being able to uh, track their phones as well as their use of uh, their their cell phones while they were uh, inside the uh, inside the Capitol grounds. Uh, I mean, all three of these men have admitted that they were inside the Capitol, uh, according to what the FBI says, mm-hmm. and uh, they have images of them inside the building as well. Yeah, and uh, the ex Chicago police officer who killed Laquan McDonald. He's set to be released next month after serving less than half of his 81 month sentence. Were you surprised, Rick, to hear that Jason Van Dyke is getting out so soon? I, I was surprised only because I think, you know, we, we forget just how time passes here. And what a lot of people remember or need to remember is that, you know, he was charged in state court. And so state court is uh, much more lenient on time off of a sentencing. So for him to serve about half of his 81-month sentence, uh, is about right. He's due for due to be released on February third, um, and of course, um, Department of Corrections is not saying where he's being housed. Although I believe it's out of state, uh, but yeah, it just I think it just shows how quickly time goes by. If he had been charged in a federal charges, those kinds of things, that that's normally a seventy five percent of your sentence gets served here. So right. uh, I guess we shouldn't really be surprised that, that, that he's getting out as soon as he is. And uh, Aaron, former 22nd Ward Alderman Ricardo Munoz made headlines this week, too. He's hoping to avoid prison time after pleading guilty to wire fraud and money laundering. Are federal prosecutors on board with him avoiding prison? Um, not so much. Um, his attorney is trying to make the argument that Munoz shouldn't have to serve prison time and should instead, you know, be able to serve his sentence, you know, doing com- community service. Um, 
And his attorney seemed to make the argument that, like, what he did was not so bad compared to other, um, you know, Chicago and Illinois officials, what they what they have done um, in the past. So, um, yeah, what he did was he took money from the Chicago Progressive Reform Caucus and used it for uh, personal expenditures, including a tuition payment. And that is not that's not legal. Um, so, right. so, yeah, the feds are requesting that he serve like a little over one year in prison um, since he did break the law and he's a public official. Um, but, yeah, the Munoz's attorney is arguing that it would be, you know, further burden on on the prison system and cost taxpayers. So um, we'll hear more about that in February during his next uh, hearing. And Rick, we've got new details in the investigation of Alderman Ed Burke. What did we learn from this 160-page FBI document? Yeah, this has been a long-awaited document, but this is basically the affidavit that was uh, used to, that led to the 2018 raid of his uh, aldermanic offices. Here again, how how far time passes? We're talking almost you know four years ago that this uh, investigation and prosecution has been taking place. And what it basically showed is that we knew uh, that uh, then Alderman Danny Solis had been uh, taping Burke uh, over these allegations that Burke used his public office to. Um, benefit uh, his uh, tax, uh, property tax reduction law firm. Uh, But we also learned that the FBI also has video uh, as he uh, allegedly tried to use that office for his uh, tax business. Um, What we're still kind of waiting for, though, is, you know, it just shows the voluminous documentation uh, that the feds have compiled here. And that's part of the reason why we've really yet to go to trial because of uh, the defense attorney saying that, you know, to comb through all the information that the prosecution's bringing is just taking a tremendous amount of time. You're listening to Reset's weekly news recap with Rick Pearson, who's chief political reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter for the Daily Line. Coming up in about 10 minutes on the program, volcanoes, pancakes, balls. The deep freeze means the ice on Lake Michigan is morphing into crazy and beautiful shapes. We'll have an appreciation of the lake in winter just ahead. Uh, Let's turn now to COVID panel. There was a big announcement about Chicago's status regarding the peak of the Omicron surge. I want to hear an update from Chicago's top doc, Allison Arwady. I am very, very pleased to say that we have formally past the Omicron peak here in the city of Chicago. However, we are a long way from being out of the woods, and it's really important over these next few weeks and months that we continue to work hard on getting folks vaccinated, getting folks tested, continuing to wear masks, because there's a long way to come down. However, I'm really pleased to have seen this turnaround. What more are we hearing, Erin? Yeah, so that's uh, you know, good news that that we've reached that point in this. But um, you know, officials are kind of saying they're they're cautiously optimistic, or that's at least what Governor JB Pritzker said. Um, that the state too is past the worst of this surge. Um, numbers are going down in Chicago. Are um, people buying that? Um, I don't know. I mean, 
personally and everyone who I know, I think we're still kind of operating in the same sphere that we were a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, That also could be because it's winter and it's cold outside and I, I'm not running out to, you know, go do things. Right. um, Alison Arwoody did say that, you know, as numbers continue to go down and and if this continues, some restrictions could ease up, including um, at some point, you know, getting rid of the vaccine requirement um, indoors, which that was kind of surprising to me. Um, But it was pointed out, like, we can't operate that way forever. Um, So I'm interested to see at what point, you know, these restrictions do ease and, um, you know, how, how that affects, you know, mask mandates and, and everything else. Um, I've, I've just kind of gotten used to wearing a good mask wherever I go. And it's nice now that it's, it's cold outside. It keeps me a little warm too. Exactly. Well, with this news about uh, the city passing the Omicron peak, Chicago public schools announced that it wanted to shorten the quarantine and isolation period to five days from 10. What did CEO Pedro Martinez have to say. Yeah, so he said this is, I mean, this is kind of in line with guidance from, or this is in line with guidance from the CDC and from the state. Um, So Martinez said this week that the district is, you know, in the process of working on shortening the logistics of shortening that quarantine time because you can't just, I mean, I I don't actually know what goes into shortening that time, but it's going to be a process for shortening the the required um, isolation time for students um, and and employees, teachers. Um, right. But I think he said we could expect more on how those what those changes would look like next week. Um, CPS is yeah, also but, um, revealing that they've they've doubled the number of students being tested regularly for COVID. So there's another another change they've seen since the. Um, the fallout a few weeks ago. Um, and I know that that was one of the major changes that the teachers union was asking for, wasn't it, Aaron, for more testing? Yeah, that, that was something. So yeah, when the teachers walked out, they said, you know, they were demanding better safety, you know, protocols and, and testing. Um, so yeah, that is interesting to see that there is, you know, this is a tangible way, I guess, that this walkout affected um, change, at least in, in testing. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to see where we are, I guess, a month from now and, and how, you know, these uh, quarantine, the kind of eased quarantine restrictions. Um, well, sticking with uh, with testing, Aaron, there was an alarming COVID story this week. Uh, it was first reported by Block Club Chicago that uh, the Minnesota attorney general is suing a suburban Chicago testing company. What's the Center for COVID Control being accused of exactly? Yeah, so the Center for COVID Control, they have sites that have kind of popped up throughout the city, sometimes seemingly overnight. Um, and Black Club's reporting has shown that, you know, the testing sites, one, they've they've shut down after allegedly sending people fake or, you know, incorrect results after they tested at their centers. Um, and, you know, it also found... Reporting also found that the the owner of this company was like bragging over social media about what he could buy with you know money from from COVID testing, um, and the stories you know they kind of just keep coming. As Block Club reported yesterday, that the Center for COVID Control got 124 million dollars in funding mm-hmm. from the federal government to do the testing, and you know as testing was ramping up, um, the company couldn't keep up with 
with the demand and employees ended up leaving tests unrefrigerated and, and um, being told to lie to people about their test results. So that's really unfortunate as wow. people were, you know, testing to see their family and friends um, over the holidays. And it's kind of seems like the crux of when all this you know, happened. Right. And unknowingly, some of them, you know, passing COVID on to, to family members thinking they're negative when, you know, perhaps they were positive, but their test results were inaccurate. Uh, and this isn't the only company that's being accused of this kind of testing scam, is it, Aaron? There have been a lot of headlines this week about these phony clinics popping up. There have. Yeah. And I know at least the, the Tribune had a story yesterday, I think, with, with tips for finding legitimate sites because, you know, that's one question I have. Um, what, where do I go then? Um, and one of them is, you know, go to state-run or government-run sites first. Um, ask questions about the tests that are being given and, and the labs that the tests are being sent to. Um, another, another tip is to know to, or to um, be wary of sites that are asking people to pay cash or, you know, credit directly for, for these tests. Um, so, I don't want to say it's like the Wild West, but but now that all of these, you know, phony testing sites are closed, there are fewer places to go to get tested and it is. There sure are. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of stressful. <laughs> Switching gears, Rick, uh, a new area code is coming to the south suburbs today. Can you give us the 411 on 464? <laughs> yes, get used <laughs> had to, to, do it, had to do it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that's uh, going to be the overlay area code for the 708, current 708 area, which is uh, in the south suburbs. And, you know, this is uh, this will require everybody will have to dial the one plus uh, in that area. And uh, it's it's going to create a, a bit of havoc uh, for, for those users. But it's something that we've seen in other parts. And basically, you know, it's part of partly the explosion of uh, cell phones in in our culture in the region and we've seen these overlays added before in the past and uh, now people when they see their uh, cell phone light up with a 464 and go where the heck is that coming from Mm -hmm. Uh, they should be they should be aware it might be one of their relatives calling that's right uh you know we'd like to end the recap whenever we can on, on good news area animal shelters they're getting a boost that's thanks to actress and comedian betty white Paws Chicago, which is the Midwest's largest no-kill shelter, said that they received $100,000 as part of the Betty White Challenge. That was last Saturday uh, on what would have been her 100th birthday weekend. And the Animal Care League in Oak Park, which is where Betty White was born, they also received quite a number of donations. Rick, it's, it's pretty incredible the impact that she continues to have. Huh. Yeah, and and you know, and and this was just a very simple request for a very beloved uh, actress and comedian of just send five dollars to your favorite shelter, uh, five bucks, and the the outpouring of support, as you mentioned, you know, here in Chicago and in the suburbs, and this was a national effort, and I mean, the money was recorded by zoos, uh, recorded by just even you know local. Uh, suburban shelters of various uh, dog breeds. Uh, I mean, just a just a tremendous kind of uh, loving moment in a kind of culture where we all are looking at divisiveness all the time. That's wonderful. 
That's Rick Pearson, who's chief political reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and Aaron Haggerty, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. Thank you both for joining us. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.